Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. In this episode of Talking Humanitarianism, you will hear Elena Fidian-Kuzmia deliver the NCHS annual lecture at the NCHS conference held in Bergen, Norway on 4 November 2022. Elena Fidian-Kuzmia is a professor in Migration and Refugee Studies at the University College London, and her lecture is titled Against the Humanitarian Grain. We hope you enjoy the episode. My name is Maria Gabrielson Drumbert. I'm a senior researcher and the research director at uh, PRIO, the Peace Research Institute Oslo, and the other co-director, together with Stein uh, and Antonio, the, of the NCHS. Um, first, a few words of introduction about Professor uh, Fidian Kasmia. Um, she's a professor of migration and refugee studies at the University College London. And she's also the co-director of UCL's Migration Research Unit and the director of uh, the Institute of, of Institute, sorry, of Advanced Studies, Refuge in a Moving World uh, Research Network. Her research, which I think has been central to the field of migration and refugee studies in recent years, focuses uh, on the intersections between gender, generation and religion in experiences with and responses to conflict-induced displacement, with a particular focus on the Middle East. Uh, those here working on displacement are probably already well familiar uh, with her work, and I encourage uh, those who are not, uh, to, uh, I strongly encourage you to, to uh, check out her work, um, which I think very nicely complements um, several of the discussions that we have started up uh, here today uh, regarding how aid is conceptualized, who are the categories of protection, who are the actors, and how we or organize and conceptualize uh, and think about this aid. In this talk that you will be giving uh, to us today, uh, entitled Against the Humanitarian Grain, uh, she proposes to explore what can be gained by putting aside the humanitarian frame and instead thinking about multi-scalar responses to displacement. I'm very much looking forward to hearing more uh, about this uh, and now give you the floor. And just also to let you know that we will have a little bit of time after uh, your talk for some Q&A uh, as well that I will moderate afterwards. But now, please, Elena, the, war the floor is yours. Thank you so much, um, Maria, for your very kind words of welcome. And thank you to, um, to the organisers for inviting me. So as uh, Maria has um, indicated, today I'm going to propose um, or ask the provocation at least of what would happen if we were to go against the humanitarian grain and in fact displace humanitarianism as our key frame of reference. And in so doing, I'll be going um, beyond my earlier project um, to, I quote, write the other into humanitarianism, um, which is uh, the name of uh, a number of um, pieces of work actually published in 2013 and then 2015 onwards, um, in which I proposed um, displacing uh, the humanitarian um, epitaph, as it were, um, to set aside questions of labelling geopolitical hegemony and even the quest for genealogical recognition of a plurality of humanitarianism, to actually think more critically about refugee response writ large. And today I'll be drawing um, on insights from two uh, of my ongoing research projects, which have been examining local and southern responses to displacement from Syria, including those implemented by people with displacement backgrounds themselves. Um, and those two projects are the Refugee Hosts Research Project and also the Southern Responses to Displacement Project. Now, as a brief background, um, as we all know, since the 2000s, numerous academics have examined the evolution and the nature of humanitarianism, typically tracing its origins to the Enlightenment period and to the role of Christian actors throughout Europe's imperial projects and also to the activities of northern religious groups in the early 19th century. 
And many such studies note, quoting Professor Barnett and Weiss, that although the idea of saving lives and relieving suffering is hardly a Western or Christian creation, modern humanitarianism's origins are located in Western history and Christian thought. While repeatedly asserting modern humanitarianism's northern and Christian origins, authors such as Professor Barnett, um, who has um, offered the, the keynote lecture um, to this important conference, have at times admitted that despite entitling his book Empire of Humanity, A History of Humanitarianism, the reader should note, I quote, that Western bias is ahead. This is not a book on the history of all forms of humanitarianism around the world. Now, my work around writing the other into humanitarianism is precisely taking a step further from that, because rather than remedying the bias by integrating a nuanced analysis of other forms of humanitarianism, including a critique of mechanisms through which the history of non-Northern and indeed non-Christian humanitarianisms have been erased from or footnoted in the hegemonic archive of knowledge following uh, Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault respectively, the Northern Academy as a whole has continued to reproduce this primary focus on Northern-led institutional, uh, Northern-led humanitarianism, including the um, actions of particular institutions and of states. And it was against that backdrop that in my earlier work, I sought to write the other into humanitarianism with the multiple and interconnected aims of questioning labeling processes and geopolitical hegemony, whilst pursuing a quest for a genealogical recognition of the plurality of humanitarianisms around the world. So hence, the aims of my research included recognising that, I quote, ideology and politics pervade not just humanitarian practice, but the humanitarian epithet itself. And it is this politics that has for so long footnoted the other in the study of humanitarianism. With my co-author, Julia Pacitto, I also proposed that, I quote, rather than reproducing the assumption that humanitarianism as a term originated in the Enlightenment, it becomes necessary to trace how and why this northern appropriation of the term humanitarianism has come to be taken for granted and institutionalized in contemporary systems of knowledge and practice. My work also sought to, I quote, problematize northern appropriations of the humanitarian label and to enrich and expand popular understandings of that concept. And in so doing, to move beyond the assumption, such as that offered by Michel Agier, that the only conceivable form of humanitarian action is that which serves the neoliberal politics of the empire, in quote marks, as part of a global network of control and domination of the South. Now, in large part, my project on writing the other into humanitarianism built on my earlier research into diverse forms of transnational and more specifically South-South forms of support for refugees in the Middle East, including through my work vis-a-vis Cuban um, scholarship programmes for Sahrawi and Palestinian refugees since the 1970s, which offered um, refugees often as young as the age of 11 the opportunity um, to leave their home camps in order to complete their secondary level studies, sometimes their primary level studies as well, um, in addition to their tertiary level studies in Cuba, with a particular focus on providing um, medical um, educational opportunities um, so, uh, for, for doctors to be able to graduate and return to their home camps to support medical infrastructure therein. Now, far from being ancient history, I bring this example to the fore here because it reminds us of the legacies of a scholarship programme that ran from the 1970s onwards, supporting refugees and also citizens from the Middle East. That's to say that responders to displacement from Syria from um, 2012 onwards have included Palestinians, but also Syrians who studied in Cuba and who graduated in particular as medical practitioners, and who are amongst the key responders treating Syrians, Palestinians, Iraqis, Kurds, amongst others, displaced from the ongoing Syrian conflicts. Now, while sharing my research on the Cuban state's support for refugees, both with regards to transnational education support or Cuba's medical internationalism more broadly, I was repeatedly challenged by, scholar, uh, by scholars and by practitioners that Cuba's support for refugees was political, not humanitarian. And much of my subsequent research revolved around examining how the programme was conceptualised, not by myself or by other Western scholars or practitioners, but by refugee participants themselves. 
And indeed, Palestinian graduates whom I interviewed, not only in Cuba, but also um, subsequently in Lebanon, following their return and graduation from Cuba, acknowledged, here I'm going to quote from uh, an interview with Abdullah, um, that the programme was, I quote, mainly prompted because Cuban politics is based upon human values and uh, mutual respect, and in particular upon socialism, which used to be very prominent in the Arab world during that time. And Hamdi continued, certain ideological and political commonalities contributed to this collaboration between the Cuban government and the PLO. However, the humanitarian factor was present in these negotiations. And indeed, the vast majority of my interlocutors in offering their own conceptualizations of this program offered an articulation of what I would refer to as humanitarian qualifiers. So the Cuban education program was described by Marwan as having a humanitarian component. Yunus referred to a humanitarian dimension, Saadi to a humanitarian aspect, and Abdul Wahid to humanitarian ingredients. While other interviewees argued that it was a mainly humanitarian system, according to Nimr, which carries humanitarian elements, according to Hamdi, and shares its humanitarian message in spite of the embargo against Cuba. So, in summary, my earlier project thus called for an expanded genealogy of humanitarianisms in the plural, including but certainly not limited to the Cuban historical example. It included a focus on um, refugees' own conceptualizations of diverse responses to displacement and also for an expanded use of the label. So, for example, here I quote from um, Julia in my article, through expanding the use of the humanitarian label, we promote a lexical counterpolitics that unravels the very fibres of the epithet and what it represents. But increasingly, I've been complementing the earlier call with a consideration of the potentialities of actually displacing the humanitarian, thereby setting aside the label and displacing humanitarianism and all of its baggage as the starting reference point for analysis and discussion. As such, instead of trying to reappropriate and expand the existing label, fitting more into the humanitarian category, for example, I've been considering the value of shifting um, uh, attention to rethinking refugee response, with response being at the core rather than humanitarianism per se. And indeed, in my ongoing um, project funded by the European Research Council, which you can read about more on um, www.southernresponses.org, um, this actually prompted a shift from the original project title um, to a shorter title, which I'll refer to now. So the original title was Analyzing South-South Humanitarian Responses to Displacement from Syria, Views from Lebanon, Jordan and Turkey. This was a project that I put together in 2014 and then was subsequently funded in, in 2016. And I eventually moved away from that original title to the much shorter title, Southern Responses to Displacement. Now, the original full title included two terms which we have been critically examining throughout the project. Firstly, South which was included not once but twice in the full title, to represent a notion of horizontal relationality, south to south, as opposed to north to south. But also, secondly, the term humanitarian, which is another term that the project has been examining in detail, um, including through reference to what is determined to be a humanitarian response versus ideological or political, etc., and by whom. However, both the term South and the term humanitarian are terms that my interlocutors in this project have not necessarily identified with or accepted. Indeed, many um, of our interlocutors have rejected both the term South to describe their own country of origin or their hosting countries. Um, and they've also rejected the term humanitarian, including for linguistic reasons, which I'm, I'm sure that we've already discussed because humanitarian and humanitarianism doesn't necessarily have a clear translation in a variety of languages, including Arabic, for example. So shifting the focus from um, analysing South-South humanitarian responses to a focus more concretely on responses led to a reconfiguration of the, the questions somewhat to firstly how, why and with what effect different actors from across the so-called global South have been responding to displacement from Syria, that's to say a mapping of different kinds of response. And secondly, how and why these responses have been conceptualized, negotiated, accepted, rejected by refugees and of course by other responders. 
Um, in so doing, this has developed a multi-scalar and a relational approach, including regional actors, host states, southern donor states, diaspora organizations, local and transnational faith communities, and refugees themselves as providers um, of different forms of response and action. Now, as a brief aside, the development of this project has also been within the context of critiques of the so-called localization of aid agenda, which, amongst other things, has highlighted the dangers of the instrumentalization of Southern actors to meet Northern agendas. So rather than actually changing any of the status quo, there is a perpetuation of existing power inequalities um, through instrumentalization. Secondly, an ongoing failure to acknowledge the long history of Southern-led responses on multiple scales. And then also another critique of the localization, which has been at the core of a lot of my work, has been that although national and regional responses are often equated with localized responses, there's also a need for the localization agenda to be even more lo local in nature, focusing on individuals, on communities, on neighborhoods, alongside other national and subnational actors, not merely as experiencing displacement or being affected by disasters, but as responding to these in different ways. And of course, the localization of aid agenda um, as a whole has continued really to reproduce a focus on methodological nationalism, which, as we know, has been um, extensively critiqued as well within um, a, a multiplicity of fields. So this is where I do find the notion of southern more helpful than local. The localization framework risks reproducing methodological nationalism and dismissing a priori the multi-scalar and multi-directional forms of response that have long been taking place in and across displacement situations. So with that in mind, I'm going to just briefly talk through some of the examples of regional and national responses which we've seen from the very onset of the um, uh, conflict in Syria. So for example, in 2012 alone, the Arab League pledged uh, $100 million um, uh, in aid to Syrian refugees. Arab states' responses have included not only policies developed by host states, but also, for example, the Moroccan government sending aid convoys to establish a field hospital in Jordan in 2012, and the Qatar um, charity providing food and non-food aid and medical assistance for Syrian refugees in Lebanese border areas and in Jordan. And there are many, many other examples. Very briefly, I'd also like to highlight here the potential impacts of the policing of the humanitarian label and of the so-called humanitarian club through another example on a national basis. So in the case of Jordan, from 2012, the Jordan Hashemite charity organization was charged by the Jordanian government to coordinate the aid response to the arrival of Syrian refugees. And the JHCO established Zathari refugee camp, delivering aid and overseeing partnerships with major UN agencies, including UNICEF, OCHA, UNHCR and WFP, and also with a range of Islamic and Christian FBOs, including Islamic Relief, Latter-day Saints and the Lutheran World Foundation. Importantly, however, although the English version of the JHCO's website makes no reference to Islam, the Arabic version notes that the organization was established in, I quote, the Arab, uh, the Arab and Islamic world, quote, in 1990, and that the JHCO su um, supports projects which, I quote, deepen the concepts of justice and equality at the national, Arab, Islamic and international levels. Now, the erasure of the Islamic referent in the English language version of the official JHCO website is particularly relevant in light of the securitization frameworks, which have typically been applied in analyses of Islamic faith-based humanitarianism, as I've written about elsewhere. I can't go into that in more detail now, but just to stress that publicly distancing itself from the Islamic referent, in addition to stressing its roles in providing assistance and establishing partnerships, I quote, regardless of their religion, origin or creed, have all been means of asserting the JHCO's official commitment to internationally recognized humanitarian principles and can also be seen as supporting the organization's broader declarations that it is, I quote, making great strides to, to becoming an international humanitarian organization. So this is an example of an organization that wants to claim the humanitarian label and be recognized as part of the humanitarian club. And yet not all responders fall into this category, with many countries, such as Cuba, for example, preferring the notion of cooperation over humanitarian 
and this is a conversation perhaps that could be picked up on in terms of the terminology that can be used instead of humanitarian, what happens if we focus on co uh, cooperation, as many countries and organisations have been doing. So those are some national examples. There are also many transnational examples, responses from beyond the region, some of which are very well documented. For example, Brazil's Solidarity Resettlement Programme for refugees from the Middle East um, to be re resettled to, um, to, to Brazil. And you can see Marcia Vera-Espinosa's work there. But also more underreported examples, such as Malaysia's role in supporting Palestinian refugees since the 1990s and refugees from Syria since 2011, including through having, having financed the establishment of the Beit Atfala Sumud um, Club uh, or community centre in Badawi refugee camp um, in North Lebanon, where I've been conducting a lot of my research uh, since the early 2010s. There are also, of course, less institutionalised and non-state-led responses. This is where there is less attention within the framework of the localisation of aid agenda, and yet civil society groups have been identified from the onset of the Syrian conflict and, Syria and displacement from Syria as actually being the most significant actors supporting refugees in Lebanon, Jordan and Turkey. And this is um, one of the key focuses of uh, the Refugee Hosts Research Project, which I um, led from 2015 onwards, which was looking at local community experiences of and responses to displacement from Syria through in-depth research in Lebanon, Jordan and Turkey. And amongst other things, the Refugee Hosts Research Project um, was looking at a diversity of refugee-led responses in addition to those implemented by faith-based organisations and um, local citizen um, organisations as well. And here are some references um, to uh, short examples which are available on our project websites, which I'd encourage you to, to have a look at if you haven't already. So here, a recognition of refugees as responders and as hosts, rather than merely as passive recipients, or as people who merely experience refugee response. Um, it has been at the core of my research, which uh, originally led to my conceptualization of such responses around the frame of refugee-refugee humanitarianism, which I've written about in different platforms since 2015. So I was emphasising refugee-refugee humanitarianism precisely as a form of refugee-refugee relationality, noting that this is not solely within refugee communities, but also across refugee groups and, um, for example, Palestinians supporting Syrians, Iraqis, Kurds, as I'll come to shortly, but also importantly as a way of shifting the gaze away from the typical binary framework which is used in uh, humanitarian and forced migration literature, which is the binary between either the refugee and the citizen or the refugee and the institution, and exploring the relations that exist between these two supposedly discrete categories of, of beings, as it were. So the notion of refugee-refugee humanitarianism was a concept that I developed really to centralise the agency of refugees themselves. The relationality, um, as suggested in that horizontal form of engagement, and yet, increasingly, I've also been critical of my own approach to, to this framework, as um, it is also imbued with the challenges of the risk of reifying the identity of people who have been displaced to that of a homogenized and fixed group, refugees, um, and also the assumption that their responses are humanitarian from their own perspectives. So this is where the shift to responses may be more appropriate, as it leaves open the opportunity to centralise people's own conceptualizations of what motivates and what characterises their responses, and how they want their responses and those of others to be perceived, described, and indeed critiqued. I'll offer a brief example of the long histories of both displacement and of hosting and otherwise responding to displaced people here, in the words of a Palestinian who was internally displaced from Nahal Badid camp when that camp was destroyed, um, and who was subsequently hosted in Badawi refugee camp in um, 2007. There we go. So the, the quote reads as follows. While I was still in Nahd al-Badid camp, my original place of residence, I hosted five Palestinian families displaced from Burj al-Badajna camp in Beirut in 2006 for a whole month. We shared everything with them, the rooms of the house and the food, until they returned to their homes. When we left Nahd al-Badid in 2007, when the camp was razed to the ground, the people poured into Badawi camp in just one day, and the people here in Badawi were waiting for us to lend a helping hand and to help secure shelter for us. 
In 2012, I hosted a Syrian family in my house for 15 days until I secured them a house of their own. I offered them food, clothes and necessary supplies during that entire period. So over the course of six years, this Palestinian man hosted six displaced families in his own home and was directly um, internally displaced himself and was hosted by other refugees in Badawi camp. A clear reminder both of the precarity of many people's lives in displacement and of the diverse ways that refugees respond to support the needs and the rights of diverse people affected by conflict and forced migration. In the same camp, people displaced from Syria have themselves been providing support to other people displaced from Syria, as in the case of this um, Kurdish refugee from Syria. I quote, I did not receive any assistance from the host community or local aid organisations, but I received that through another Kurdish family. They were also displaced, but had arrived in the camp six months before me. This Kurdish family's support for me can be summarised in the fact that my family and I were hosted at their house for a full month and they provided food for us at their personal expense during that period. Furthermore, since the start of the COVID pandemic, the Badawi Camp Cultural Club has drawn on long histories of mutual aid initiatives, and in particular its commitment to providing iftar baskets for camp residents to break their fast during the holy month of Ramadan, including Palestinians, Syrians, Iraqis and Kurds, and drawing on that long history to um, ensure that appropriate forms of assistance were provided um, for people affected by the COVID pandemic. So here funds are raised by refugees for other refugees. Food is cooked and distributed by refugees for other refugees. The um, Cultural Club has also created and disseminated information with reference to the coronavirus, has engaged in creative fundraising campaigns in partnership with another youth-based cultural group in Budapest camp in Beirut, and with two US-based Palestinian initiatives to buy and distribute um, packages of food and sanitation products to help the residents of the camp, of those, uh, in fact, three refugee camps, um, to practice social distancing and offset some of the economic damage caused by the, by the pandemic. So these are examples of local to local collaboration or camp to camp collaboration in relation to transnational diasporic networks in order to fill gaps left by the international community, given that UNRWA was not seen as responding sufficiently quickly, and indeed state-led responses, which in the context of Lebanon were seen to be increasing precarity on multiple levels. And indeed, following the Beirut blast in, in August 2020, when Red Cross hospitals and medical staff were relocated from the north of Lebanon to support blast survivors and COVID patients in Beirut, refugee-led responses, including those developed in Badawi camp, continued to be enacted to support all camp residents, irrespective of their nationality or their status, such as the camp's club borrowing an ambulance from the Badawi municipality to counteract the negative impacts of the decision to allocate more resources to the capital. And this is what Yusuf Mustafa Kasmir and I refer to as the refugees using the citizens tool to assist other refugees. And you can read more about that in our article in Current History. Now, I would argue that stepping back from humanitarianism as a frame of reference enables us to recognise long-standing histories and processes of solidarity, mutual care, support within and across groups, camps, cities and countries, noting that these processes are often developed against and as an implicit or explicit critique of hegemonic humanitarian systems, which are seen to not only be failing, but in fact often creating problems um, and challenges that need to be overcome precisely through these um, alternative um, responses. It's also recognising the broader power dynamics of response and indeed of non-response, and I'll come to this in just a moment. And importantly, it also leads us to ask who needs, wants and or resists the humanitarian label. An important element, I think, that arises in terms of studying local level responses to refugees is significant in methodological terms when viewed through the lens of what I call the poetics of undisclosed care and the extent to which acts of kindness and solidarity may in fact be viewed as private acts which should not be disclosed to others. So here I'll just read a few quotes from some of our interlocutors. The Palestinian man from Nahr al-Badid, who's been living in Badawi camp since 2007, said, we collected clothes, we offered food and cash to refugees, but I hope you don't mention this except for reasons related to your research, because we do this only for God's sake. 
a Syrian refugee living in Badawi camp, said, those people who offer assistance without disclosing their names deserve respect. And a Kurdish refugee from Syria living in Badawi camp argued, be like the good tree that gives its fruits and does not ask who took them. So this discrete mode of supporting refugees is as strongly grounded in religious belief and practice as it is a powerful counterpoint to the international humanitarian system's long-standing preference for hyper-visible logos and public announcements of action. Now, as I move towards the end of my lecture, it's worth noting that I do not seek to idealise refugee-led responses, which are, of course, limited in many ways. And indeed, people who have been displaced themselves rightly demand that international organisations and states should be held accountable. In the words of a Syrian refugee living in Badawi camp, the local communities here in Badawi camp are also in a deplorable situation and also suffer from poverty. They cannot meet their own needs. How can they provide in-kind and financial assistance to others? We only ask them for good treatment and non-discrimination between refugees on the basis of their political affiliations. The institutions here are meant to provide assistance, and we would like them to provide assistance in a professional manner. Here we see um, the speaker is very clearly understanding the limits of the capacity to respond, um, uh, given precisely the overlapping natures of displacement of hosting, displacement and hosting, etc. Another key issue that arises is with reference to what is actually legible or visible as a form of response. So where providing material aid, distributing iftar baskets or supporting people in times of loss and mourning are indeed increasingly visible and legible as forms of response. A related question is what is perceived as a response and as an acceptable form of response by different actors. So this Syrian refugee um, uh, indicated that, I think that the biggest part of the local community does not care about uh, responding um, and their role does not transgress the limits of observing. Here, the question of whether observing without caring can be conceptualized as a response shifts to whether it can be viewed as an acceptable or sufficient form of response. I'll read another quote from a, a Kurdish refugee from Syria who said, it is enough that they allowed us to live among them despite this great population pressure. In my view, the local community is not interested in providing us with assistance. All they have to do is accept our presence in these areas and to offer us moral support. For me, it is enough that my Palestinian neighbour greets me every morning and that I go to work being sure that my children are well among their foreign neighbours. Here, what is the relative significance from the perspective of different interlocutors of the provision of material goods, of spiritual support, of conviviality, of caring and sharing space? Who determines what is enough in such a situation of overlapping precarity? Is it sufficient, as Yusuf Mustafa Kasmiya and I have been exploring as part of the Refugee Host Project, for a response to be framed around being with and being together following Jean-Luc Nancy? Is it sufficient to accept one another's presence, offering moral support and greeting one another each morning? Indeed, our speakers repeatedly, our interlocutors repeatedly came back to the question of holding accountability. So again, I'm not idealizing refugee response, um, and I want to reassert what our interlocutors have said repeatedly. It is a public responsibility. It is a responsibility of the UN and all organizations and institutions with humanitarian titles or with the term humanitarian in their title. And yet, when the local community is destitute and poor, it is mostly not responsible for offering relief to anyone, and it only has some secondary roles. And this is in itself an achievement. I appreciate what the local community has done in relation to the capacities of the others. It is significant work and deserves to be appreciated. These are the words of the Palestinian refugee from Natal Badid, internally displaced to Badawi camp. So I would argue that this is indeed an achievement. It is significant work and it deserves to be appreciated. And indeed, it is also important that the international community be held accountable. It deserves to be appreciated, even more so given the extent to which these responses take place in situations of extreme precarity. And this precarity is, of course, not merely because of displacement, but precisely because of the barriers and the hierarchies which have been introduced and reproduced by states and non-state actors, including often by humanitarian actors themselves. 
So in conclusion, as a brief provocation, I look forward to the conversations that we'll have after this. Who actually needs and benefits from monopolising the humanitarian label? Who wants the recognition and the logos and why? And what happens if we displace humanitarianism and instead examine multiscalar responses, including forms of non-response to displacement, as they take place alongside and against diverse structural barriers? Thank you very much for, for listening, and I look forward to, to the conversation. And if you are interested in, in contributing to the conversations that we've been having through the Refugee Hosts Project and through the Southern Responses to Displacement Project, you're very welcome to do so. We welcome blogs and other contributions um, online. So thank you all very much. Thank you very, very much, uh, Elena, for this very rich presentation and for sharing uh, these insights and reflections from your research with us. I think it was a, this was a very nice way to also to, to round off our day with the different discussions and, and taking us through your, your concrete experiences here. I've noted down some um, reflections uh, while listening to you, and I'm also looking forward to taking your questions and comments uh, from, uh, from all of you here uh, as well. Um, first is this uh, your reflection on the on the term of moving away both from the humanitarian frame as well as from the south to south, and the south to south is interesting that you uh, I think the, I think that also one thing that you encapsulate by referring to southern is maybe just broader and maybe more flexible than south to south because south to south also uh, presupposes that uh, where the needs are, are in the south. Uh, so it's not the, the coming from north, it's coming from the south, but the needs are necessarily in the, in the south. And um, uh, although there are maybe certain patterns in terms of where crises are uh, located, it's, it's not, not given that future needs will necessarily be located in the same geographical areas. And we can mention just uh, the mere experience of us all experiencing the, the corona crisis as a health crisis across the globe. And in the um, beginning, uh, Somalia also sent a number of uh, doctors to Italy uh, at the very beginning of the, of the uh, COVID crisis. Just to bear that in mind also that we know about the Cuban doctors also educating many doctors uh, who then have uh, played an important role in the region and, and beyond, uh, but also in instances like, like these ones with the Somali uh, doctors. Um, and the, um, the, the other uh, points, uh, and I'm happy that you also mentioned uh, an example from, uh, uh, from Brazil, uh, and I just wanted to share briefly an experience in an earlier research project I had on, uh, on Brazil's um, engagement as a, as a sort of new donor uh, in uh, quotation marks uh, as, uh, and its engagement in the humanitarian field. Um, seeing that precisely Brazil had, a, had this, what's this sort of championing, this so-called south-to-south uh, humanitarian aid. But what we also quickly saw is that the mere term humanitarian wasn't really used by the Brazilian uh, government itself. They prefer terms, well, either as international aid or aid on equal footing, uh, partnerships, etc. So, so for, from us coming there with the term humanitarian, we already felt like we were trying to impose a specific frame, uh, but we had to adapt that and, and sort of switch and tweak, tweak this language to, to make sure that we were talking about the same things. And on that occasion, I also took part in a, in a conference in India on South-South humanitarianism. And with a really interesting realization that almost none of the other participants from different southern uh, uh, sort of emerging donors, none of them had or none of those governments really would use the term humanitarian. But we came there to call this or, or there was this idea that let's discuss what what is South South humanitarianism. But each of these countries would use different other terms. So that was also an interesting realization. But that brings me to, to my question to you in uh, fo following your reasoning here that we can, uh, arguing for moving away from the humanitarian frame and looking more at the multi-scalar forms of responses. But, but do you think it's also um, 
in a way possible to to have these critical discussions that we've also had throughout the different sessions today about uh, humanitarian aid while also moving away from this term. Will we still encapsulate um, uh, these power uh, relations that we are also critically examining here? Is it in a way sufficient to, to look at uh, different types of responses? I'll start with, with that perhaps, and while I also may collect some first, first hands in the, in the audience. Great, thank you so much, Maria, and um, for your for your comments and for your question. Um, with reference to to moving away from um, the term South South, certainly um, I've been increasingly interested in, in exploring the applicability of the the Southern um, approach, precisely because there are many Souths, including Souths in the North, um, and this is something that I discuss in quite a bit of detail in a special issue of Migration Society. The introduction and the, the whole volume of which is called Recentering the South in Studies of Migration, which explores different processes of centering and decentering um, diverse rhetorical and discursive frames, but also approaches to research, um, uh, etc. It's also something that um, I've explored um, quite extensively through the Handbook of South-South Relations, which I edited with Patricia Daly. Again, there's a, a critical discussion of the term South, um, the problems of geographical fixity and of of political fixity again. Brazil is a wonderful example of a, a government which has um, changed obviously over time and the government has at times called itself through the reference of South, um, but has obviously also um, more, more recently um, been aligned to the global North and changed its, its discursive representation, political framing, its ideological framing of action. So a state changes its own um, terminology as it were um, throughout time. And um, the term cooperation comes up a lot in um, a lot of South-South um, yeah. conversations when they are framed in that way, including by the countries that describe themselves as, as Southern countries. Um, in terms of whether response is sufficient, I'm, I'm not um, arguing that we can no longer use the term humanitarian or that humanitarian studies is not relevant, but precisely to ask, well, what happens if we complement that focus on um, the plural genealogies of humanitarianisms and a critical analysis of how humanitarianism has been monopolized and been demarcated by particular actors, um, including by scholars, by states, by international organizations. What happens if we part, um, see that as part of a broader landscape of responses um, and we critique the hierarchies that have been implicit in those conversations around who can or cannot use the label humanitarian, who is identified or not as humanitarianism. So it's not to set aside and dismiss the, the term in and of itself, mm. but rather to frame it within that broader landscape, I think, of responses, mm. um, which would enable that more multiscalar and more relational approach, I think. Yep. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Uh... Thank you very much, Elena. I will collect some questions uh, from the audience. And um, please introduce yourself since um, uh, Elena may not see you as well from, from the screen. So great if you can say who you are. Yes, Hi, thank you. Michael Barnett from George Washington University. I'm sorry you couldn't be here. I'm sorry I was looking forward to meeting you in person, but this will have to do. Um, so I'm intrigued by the notion of focusing on responses. And in many ways, I think what you've uh, provocatively done is say, let's not look at concepts, even, but even if they are bundles of practices, rather let's look at practices, which are responses, right, in some kind of coherent form. And I'm sort of wondering then, what are the practice, because there's lots of different kinds of responses, and presuming that Responses to what? So I guess the first question then is, if we move away from humanitarianism and then we say, let's look at responses, then we have to make some, we have to sort of begin with some presumption about what the response is to. And so, you know, what is that? Is it about disasters, emergencies, some displacement? What are, what are the boundaries? What's the scope? conditions there. And then what, you know, the other thing about humanitarianism, right, at least the Western defined, is that there are certain kinds of practices that are identified now with humanitarianism, largely debatable. We've been debating them all day, neutrality, impartiality, uh, independence. 
what are the, in many ways, appropriate and inappropriate sets of practices then that would be associated with responses, not necessarily your judgment, but rather the judgments that may be emerging in an organic way from these different communities. Thank you so much, Michael, and I'm also looking forward to having the opportunity to meet in person another time. Um, so I'm, I'm not arguing that we don't need concepts or we don't need conceptualization. Precisely one of the key questions that I've been interested in is how people who are responding to displacement within their own communities, but also in other people's communities, how they conceptualize the different forms of action and practices that are taking place ostensibly on their behalf. So um, I'm I'm. I think that we've debated it a lot internally as a group of scholars and also extensively within different bodies of, of practitioners. But it's precisely how do people who have been affected by displacement and are responding to displacement, how do they conceptualize? Because they are everyday conceptualists, they are everyday theorists, rather than assuming that the conceptualization is the preserve of the institutions or the academics. What happens if we see refugees as not just experiencing or responding, but actually as conceptualizing? What concepts resonate? And it may be that humanitarianism is not the right frame. It's not the right conceptual frame, not just not the right practical frame, as it were, um, in that sense. So I have been interested in, in concepts and precisely in exploring how people describe their own experiences of the different forms of response and the critiques that they develop um, on conceptual as well as practical and political levels. So indeed, responses to what? Again, if we actually think about the challenges that people in Badawi camp have been experiencing, um, of course, they have experienced displacement either personally or um, from, from their families, but the challenges that they face are multiple. And the expectation that needs and rights are only marked by the immediacy of displacement or the immediacy of disaster has been extensively critiqued by scholarship and also by, um, by practitioners who have increasingly realized that uh, vulnerabilities do not decrease over time, they often increase. We can no longer expect that um, a year after displacement, people's vulnerabilities have disappeared. And it's precisely because of these intersecting crises or these intersecting um, precarities that the responses need to reflect the actual needs of the people as determined by themselves, um, by members of their, of their communities and within the broader networks or kind of clusters of, of realities that they experience. And the COVID example, as, as, as Maria uh, indicated earlier, is a perfect example. It's not necessarily needs and rights that have been undermined by displacement. It's potentially needs and rights undermined by um, discriminatory employment practices and access to medical care. It's potentially challenges that have been created by inequitable um, approaches, which have uh, been created by a bifurcated aid system, which means that residents of the same camp receive different forms of assistance depending on their nationality rather than on their place of, of origin. So you have Palestinians from Syria versus Syrians from Syria receiving different kinds of assistance. And the challenges that they face are created by this bifurcated system. And therefore, the responses need to be to the challenges that they specifically are experiencing due to those overlapping crises. It might be that COVID is the key response. But it might also be that it's it's discriminatory employment systems. It might be that it's national um, and international systems creating barriers and creating um, uh, hierarchies of worth that lead to particular groups having particular challenges. So I think that we can still identify um, the need to identify responses to the needs and rights that are determined by people themselves rather than predetermined by humanitarian actors. I'll give the example also of, um, of death and dying. Again, this focus on immediate needs and the humanitarian system's emphasis on keeping people alive um, meant that, for example, um, throughout the 1990s still, people's need and right to bury their loved ones were still dismissed by humanitarian practitioners. And it's something that still um, continues to be um, kind of undermined by this continual effort and this continual ref, um, record and, and reference to keeping people alive. Dignity and death and dying is a key issue that has been dismissed often 
by uh, humanitarian actors, with Oxfam, for example, refusing to allow people to use tarpaulin, which had officially been set aside for them to, um, to be used for shelter, that they actually wanted to use to bury their loved ones in dignity. So here, responses to what? Responses to a multiplicity of things, but through the references and through the priorities of the people affected by um, conflict and displacement, um, and those intersecting, overlapping precarities that change over time rather than disappearing within the short, um, the short term. So, so many things to, to, to discuss and an incomplete answer from me, but thank you very much for the question. Thank you very much, Elena and, and Michael, also for your question. Uh, we'll move on to another question from Antonio. Yeah. Hi, Elena. Um, Antonio here. So thanks for joining us today. I, it's still strange for me to talk with the television, but uh, yes. <laughs> I, will, I will do my best. <laughs> so it's... Um, my question is very basic and it's related to, to what you briefly mentioned as uh, not romanticizing, uh, you know, gr in a way, grassroots responses. Uh, in, in this, this is very important because uh, uh, very often we, we hear that uh, like the alternative to you know, big organizations uh, form of humanitarianism is to go local. And that was the mantra of the 2016 World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul, uh, where the localization was the you know the key word, right? And uh, and often we forget that uh, grassroots responses can be solidarity and kindness, but also uh, xenophobia, racism, and violence. Uh, these are can be very much grassroots as as the opposite. So so although I'm very sympathetic with the with the all overall framework of your you know you know conceptual. Uh, expansion of the field and in terms of you know multiscalar and also the premise that uh, we are very blind and normally about the histories of humanitarianism rather than history <laughs> um, uh, but uh, at the same time i think it, we need a constant attention to to you know to these grassroots responses because they can and and, and we have seen that in europe uh, actually also in terms of you know recent electoral results that uh, can turn out to be worse than expected. Thank you so much, Antonio. Thank you for, for the invitation. I think that what we require is an equally critical approach to international as to local and grassroots. So I'll start with the potentially also provocative statement um, that most people around the world survive in spite of the state rather than because of it. And that's um, Osur um, who, who argues that point. So if we start from the premise that, in fact, most people affected by displacement do not receive humanitarian assistance that is life-saving. Um, most people actually have to really make do and um, mix, mix and match, as it were, with different forms of support um, and do not merely seek to survive. They seek to, to build meaningful lives. So we need to be equally critical of the international community, of the international principles, of the international failures and the violence that has been perpetuated by humanitarian actors. We need to be equally critical of those, um, you know, the, the, the sexual abuse um, and um, the, the numerous scandals um, that, uh, that reach the media but affect people's lives on a daily basis. We need to be equally critical of those as we do to, to grassroots. So we can't assume that grassroots are negative just as we can't assume that all international responses are negative either. But we also can't assume that the international humanitarian system is positive writ large and that experiences of, of those uh, responses are positive writ large. So we need to be, I think, equally critical and to also um, not assume that xenophobia is going to be the starting point. I don't think that um, anti-refugee um, responses are inevitable. I think they're politically produced and they're manipulated by politicians, by the media, etc. So I think that we can, we, we need to acknowledge there's a multi-scalar frame of reference. And if you actually speak with people in Badawi camp, for example, they are equally critical of the UN, of Northern-led responses, but also of Saudi, of Qatar, um, and of local community-based responses. And they have the right to be equally critical and to identify what their points of reference are. And I think that that's a, a useful, help, uh, helpful starting point to not idealize any, but to be equally critical of them and to ensure that we're, we're starting from the perspective of um, the people who themselves are seeking to find solutions to their own problems, which is what people who've been affected by displacement are always trying to do. And what are the structural barriers that prevent them from doing that? Is it xenophobia? Is it political rhetoric? Is it media um, scape scapegoating of refugees? Is it international systems that create bifurcated modes of response, that create tensions and hostility between groups? 
certainly they're, they're all examples that I've, I've been documenting in my research. I don't think that hostility is inevitable. And I, I don't also think that grassroots are the, the, um, the unequivocal solution. Rather, it needs to be seen within that broader framework of structural barriers, structural inequalities, and um, what people themselves seek to do and what prevents them from finding meaningful ways of living their lives. Great, thank you very much. Uh, I have another question from the audience. Uh, thank you very much, Elena. I also have a very, very basic question, and I apologize in advance if you've mentioned this during your presentation. I'm just wondering if, um, uh, in the framework of these initiatives, um, have you studied uh, displaced Syrians who are not necessarily living in camps? Because also, um, sometimes when we are just talking about Syrian refugees living in camps, uh, we are actually um, unintentionally forgetting those who are living outside camps and forgetting their also uh, concept conceptualization and and understanding and describing um, their own um, challenges and uh, their own coping mechanisms. If I maybe for giving you the you. the floor again, Elena, just add a final question. Unless there are any other final questions from the audience, uh, just to add to your question on the, in a way, the others scale. Um, what would you say from your the insights that you share with us here on how these different types of responses uh, are organized and 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 what they do and uh, what's what are could be the key takeaways for that. Uh, from that to uh, to the big organizations like the UNHCR or the EU when they think about how to respond to different mm -hmm. forms of displacement. Great. Thank you so much, Maria. And thank you, Khulud, for your question. Absolutely. So in both the Refugee Host Project and in Southern Re um, Responses to Displacement, um, myself and a, a team of researchers, including um, people who have displacement backgrounds themselves, and you can find information about them um, on, on the websites. Um, we've been conducting research in nine local neighbourhoods and specifically not only camps. So um, the Refugee Host Project, for example, in Lebanon included research in Hamra in Beirut, um, something that I got quite a lot of pushback from from colleagues. So Hamra is a bourgeois, middle class, um, arty neighbourhood in Beirut, which is full of coffee shops, etc. And um, people were were very um, concerned that we weren't looking at in uh, informal tented settlements, for example, in the Bekaa, because that's where real refugees live, as opposed to the refugees who live in uh, in Beirut. Um, so we specifically looked at um, at Hamra, for example. And also one question that I've been very interested in with reference to Badawi camp is where does the camp begin and where does it end? And mm. precisely the Badawi neighbourhood is an area that we've also been conducting research in and exploring the relationalities between people who do live in camps and those who've decided to live in the neighbouring area, which isn't a, officially a, a camp area, but is an, a Lebanese neighbourhood, um, um, which um, has residents from, um, from a variety of different nationality and, and legal statuses. Um, equally, in Turkey and in Jordan, um, research has been conducted both in camps and also in um, towns and cities. So a variety of perspectives and a variety of responses um, have therefore been, have been documented there. So I hope that that um, um, partly responds to, to that question. We'll be writing more about um, uh, the different conceptualizations developed um, um, by people who are um, living in different contexts and uh, and how they're responding and conceptualizing their own um, their own experiences there. Um, in terms of um, what insights can be gained by international um, communities. Um, we've um, published a series of research briefs and um, policy reports, um, which we have been sharing with, um, with, with interlocutors from a variety of different organizations, um, including precisely um, that, that point that I was raising with Antonia, um, the extent to which, in fact, international communities often unintentionally create tensions um, through hierarchies. So one of the key issues that um, I've, I've been in conversation with a number of European states in addition to UN organisations is avoiding um, viewing displacement situations in isolation and focusing on nationalities. So focusing on Syrian refugees alone excludes large numbers of people who've been displaced from the same conflict and face um, often similar um, uh, challenges. Whereas if we'd simply change the term to people displaced from Syria, 
then we can actually, or um, uh, refugees from Syria, we can make sure that we aren't excluding people and we aren't creating unintentionally hierarchies um, and systems of exclusion and discrimination, which actually create precarity and then um, uh, create the need for different forms of response. So that's one point. Um, uh, tensions aren't inevitable. They're often created unintentionally by international systems of inequality and, uh, and exclusion. Um, and also that we need to be more attentive to what is taking place on the ground and ensuring that any initiatives that do come in do not destabilize things that are already working well that um, as, as one of the speakers from the previous panel was saying, that we ensure that we listen to the priorities um, of people who are always already finding ways of responding to their own situations. Um, what can be done to support those responses that are working? Um, what can be done to, to strengthen those without unintentionally destabilizing and creating new challenges? Because that's what's historically happened. Um, so there are some of the brief takeaways that, that we've been sharing with international community actors um, and the conversation obviously continues. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elena, also for sharing these very concrete uh, takeaways uh, at the end. Uh, thank you so much for, for this talk and for engaging with these questions. Uh, before passing on the word to the last speaker, please join me to thank uh, Elena, Filian, Kasmiya so much for your talk. Thank you.